Well, I'll never forget Friday afternoons when I was in year seven. You see, I went to a high school that was notoriously strict, a school where you just had to stand up straight and pull your socks up even straighter. But that wasn't how it went down in the last class of the week in year seven, music class. Every time the teacher walked into the middle of the classroom, it was like somebody, it was like watching somebody walk into the middle of the Colosseum. It was brutal. I mean, I kid you not, you could smell this teacher's fear. Because every class without fail would just go right off the rails. If you're a school teacher, you might be able to sympathise. I mean, imagine just having to walk into a classroom of 30 high school boys whose minds were already on the weekend. If there was anything made in that class, it wasn't music, it was only mayhem. So every time the teacher would try and speak, sure enough, someone had blast their instrument. I remember one time two kids were having a wrestle and one thought the other's head might be useful for percussion and just pushed it straight through a pane glass window. And there was this other time when another kid somehow managed to get the mechanism on his lever-arch folder, believe it or not, caught around the underside of his tongue. I mean, I know the mind boggles, don't ask me how or what he was trying to do with it, but... I just remember watching in disbelief as the medical officers just led him away with this music folder up here. I can only imagine what they thought every Friday afternoon as they parked their ambulance beneath a big sign that said, educating tomorrow's leaders. (laughs) Friday afternoon music class was not good and it all came down to this. You cannot teach someone when they do not respect your authority. Which brings us to the classroom of Corinth. Up to this point in Paul's letter, he's devoted three whole chapters to the issue of division and conflict. And after giving it so much space... And after seeing how he signed off on chapter 3, especially in the last three verses, it kind of felt like he had nothing more to say on this issue. It kind of felt like Paul was done. But in light of today's reading, chapter 4, obviously he's not done. Obviously he feels the need to say more. And so why does he feel that need? Why does Paul feel the need to dedicate yet another chapter to this issue? Why does he feel the need to say even more on the issue of division and and conflict before he's prepared to move on and just say everything else he'll go on to say in this epic letter? It's because Paul knew what my music teacher should have known all along that you cannot teach someone when they do not respect your authority. And as long as they didn't respect Paul's apostolic authority, there is no point in writing the rest of this letter, for he is the one 
holding the pen. Hence chapter 4. Paul dedicates chapter 4 to not only defend his ministry, but to reassert his authority. Because the Corinthians were looking at everything that was happening to him. They were looking at all of the hardships and all of his struggles, and they saw that as grounds to reject his authority. Because when they saw all of that and they saw how bad it was, they said to themselves, there is no way that this guy is backed by God. So how do you define success in this life as a Christian? What parameters do you use to determine whether or not things are going well? Whether those things be you and your faith personally or the life and ministry of this church? Does hardship and struggle lead you to say to yourself or be tempted to say, there is no way that I or this thing is backed by God? Because today, as Paul digs in to defend his authority and ministry, he is going to remind us why we mustn't say that. Because he's going to remind us not to view such things from the lens of this world. The lens which uses parameters like celebrity and prosperity and ascendancy to define success but to instead view such things from the lens of the cross. The lens which uses parameters like humility, fidelity, and integrity, no matter what. And this is important for us to remember, so that when in hardship, we don't become discouraged or worse become indifferent and go off the rails like they were going off the rails in Corinth. And so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Well, in case those in Corinth were wondering just how Paul wanted them to regard him, he spells it out in verse 1. He says, you ought to regard us as servants, and not just any servants, servants of Christ, servants entrusted with the mysteries of God. And like any servant, Paul's required to be faithful in verse 2. But whether he actually is or not, it isn't determined by them. It's not even determined by himself. It's determined only by God. Which means when it comes to judging his ministry and faithfulness, not only are they uncertified to make that determination, for the judgment is not theirs to make, they are also unqualified. They are unqualified because they are unable to do what only God can in verse 5. They are unable to see what's hidden in darkness. 
They are unable to expose the motives of the heart, which is why there's only one who can make that judgment, and that one is God. And he will do so at the appointed time, so says verse 5. Paul is saying to them, even though I minister to you, I am a servant of and therefore answer to someone else and that someone else is God. I remember when a friend of mine was appointed minister of a particular church up in Sydney. And an elder from that church sat him down and went through the church's procedures and he said to my friend, I just want you to know that I'm not going to keep you accountable for your time. And my friend thanked him because of the level of trust that came with those words, but he was also surprised. For the church he'd just come from had a lot of accountability measures in place, and so my friend said to the elder, well, but if you don't mind me asking, may I ask why? I mean, thank you, but why won't? Why wouldn't you keep me accountable for my time And then the elder just looked at him and said, I don't have to, son, because God will. And he can see how you use your time far better than me. Friends, when it comes to these first five verses from Paul, there is both tremendous caution and tremendous comfort to be be found concerning what we do for the Lord. First of all, there is tremendous caution, for God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And so every dark deed, everything we've hidden and hoped we've gotten away with, every false and improper motive will be brought to light and exposed. And if that scares you as much as it does me, then confess those dark and hidden sins to the Lord so that its punishment will be meted out on Christ instead of you. That's the tremendous caution. But there is also tremendous comfort. For after Paul cautions us in the first two-thirds of verse 5, he then comforts us with what remains. For then he says, at that time... Each will receive their praise. In other words, God doesn't just see all of your acts of sin. He sees all of your acts of service, and for every act of service he sees, you will receive his praise. And that should be a source of tremendous comfort. For one of the things we're often really bad at a church is acknowledging and appreciating and applauding individuals for their acts of service, especially those that do things behind the scenes. Now, for if I were to ask for a show of hands from everyone who's ever felt unappreciated for an act of service, what wouldn't surprise me is if one hand went up. But what would surprise me is if one hand didn't. 
And if ever you've felt that, if ever you've felt unappreciated, then you would understand in some way what it was like for Paul here. For as we're about to see in verses 9 through 13, he risked his life more than once for their salvation or for their benefit, to borrow his words from verse 6. And yet here they are, not only disrespecting his authority and ministry, but they're even criticizing it. And yet somehow he's able to bring himself to say, even though that is what you're doing, to me it is only a small thing. It is only a little thing. It is only an unimportant thing. The NIV translates, translates him as saying, I care very little at the start of verse 3, but that runs the risk of unfairly adding a tone of spitefulness or of vindictiveness because the word care is just simply not there in the Greek. Now, Paul more literally says to me, it is a small thing, it is a little thing, an unimportant thing. But how can Paul or even ourselves only consider being unappreciated or worse, unfairly criticised, a small thing? Because it hurts, doesn't it? I mean, so how can we ever consider that a small or little or unimportant thing? Well, we can only do that when we remind ourselves of what Paul reminded himself of. When we remind ourselves that God doesn't just see our acts of sin, he sees our acts of service. And for every act of service he sees, we will receive his praise. Which means, when all is said and done, the judgments and criticisms of others, even those from ourselves, often we are our own harshest critic, none of that will even matter. For as Paul says at the end of verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. Well, as Paul moves on to the main section of this chapter, verses 6 through 13, his focus becomes consumed by two themes, his meekness and their arrogance. In verse 6, Paul says, look at me in Apollos. We applied these things to ourselves for your benefit. We did that so you'll know what it means to not go beyond what is written. In other words, your leaders shouldn't be a cause for divisive pride. They should be a cause for divine praise. No, God didn't give you your leaders to make much of them. He gave them to you to make much of him. Everyone's from God. Everything's been received. All of it's a gift. So if you're going to boast in anything, boast only in him. Even though those in Corinth should have been boasting in God, 
Verse 8 reveals they were boasting in themselves. For there Paul says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Already you have begun to reign. And Paul's sarcasm reveals that they expected him to be the same. And the fact that he wasn't is why they regarded his authority with disdain. While chapters 1 and 2 at the beginning of this letter revealed Paul may have been hesitant to use rhetoric in his preaching, chapter 4 reveals he wasn't hesitant to use it in his writing. For after using sarcasm to finish off verse 8, Paul then uses another rhetorical device known as point-by-point contrast to construct the main section of this chapter, verses 9 through 13. And point-by-point contrast is a literary device developed by, surprise, surprise, the ancient Greeks. And the technique was used to change a reader's perspective by repeating the differences uh, or emphasising the differences repeatedly between two alternatives. And so here we see Paul construct this point-by-point contrast between his experience and theirs just right through this middle section. He says, You're already rich and reign. I'm like one relegated to die in the arena. You're a symbol of strength and wisdom and honour. I am a spectacle of weakness, folly, and dishonor. You already have all you want. All I have is homelessness, hard work, and hunger. When the ancient writers used this contrasting technique, they'd often end with the alternative that they considered preferable. For that was the last thing that they wanted to remain on their readers' minds, for that was how they pointed their readers to the right perspective. Which is why, once Paul reaches verse 11, he no longer alternates from there on. From there on, he just retains the focus on his own experience. From there, he refuses to revisit theirs. For this is how he brings the contrast to rest from verse, from verse 11. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Paul uses this point-by-point contrast for he is trying to change his reader's perspective. 
because he needs those in Corinth to stop seeing reality from the lens of this world and to start seeing it from the lens of the cross. So which lens do you see your reality from? Is it from the lens of this world? Or is it from the lens of this cross? From the lens of the cross? What parameters do you use to determine whether or not things are going well? Whether those be your life and faith personally or the life and ministry of this church? Does your theology allow you to view negative circumstances in a faith fire-refining, Father God-disciplining, greater glory-accomplishing, suffering servant-participating, Jesus-name-honouring light? Or does your theology allow for no such categories because like those in Corinth, you view your reality through the lens of this world rather than the cross? Because hear this, you will never understand what God is doing in your suffering for him. You will never understand what God is doing when your life reads like verses 11 through 13 unless you view your reality through the lens of the cross. You will not understand what God is doing in the ridicule at school, at uni or work, in the ostracization from your family, in the vitriol on social media, in the cold community response. You will not understand any of that of what God is doing in all of that unless you can see it through the cross. So ask yourself now, Which lens do you see it through? And if it isn't the cross, then buy into Paul's rhetoric and change your perspective. For the true mark of faith is not prosperity. It's usually adversity. Which is why seeing reality through the cross is the only way you can still have hope when you effectively become what Paul describes as the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, and the refuse of all things. When the world regards itself with honor and regards you with dishonor. Well, as we head on to the home straight of this chapter, it seems that Paul has one more contrast to make. For in verse 14, he writes, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you, my dear children. For now that Paul's argument against their division has finally come to an end, an argument which began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 10. Paul speaks directly to the issue that's been lying underneath all along. Their disrespect of his authority. 
And Paul speaks directly to that issue here just before he moves on to the main teaching section of this letter because as we heard at the beginning, you cannot teach someone when they do not respect your authority. And what better way to reassert his authority than with the image of a father. After referring to them as his dear children in verse 14, in verse 15 he writes, Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Paul urges them to imitate him because the cross demands far more than a proper perspective. It also demands proper practice. Because the cross, it will not settle for anything less than what verse 17 describes as a way of life lived in Christ. Paul is saying to them, what Christ did for you on the cross demands everything in your life, everything about your life must change. It's not enough to just look through the right lens. You must also live in the right sense. And make no mistake, I, Paul, I say this as your apostolic father with all of the authority given to me by Christ. He is the one who demands this from you one way or another. So which way do you prefer? Verse 21. Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come to you in love with a gentle spirit? As verse 14 makes crystal clear, Paul's intent in saying all this is not to shame them. It's to warn them. Warn them of their need to live, like Paul, a way of life in Christ. For if they keep failing to learn the lesson when this letter comes, or when, when Timothy comes, or even when Paul himself comes, then make no mistake, they will not fail to learn it. When Christ comes, only then it'll be too late. Which is why Paul's not just prepared to write, he's even prepared to go there to make sure they heed the warning. Friends, if ever under the providence of God you happen to come across a sin in the life of another believer, I know it's a very awkward and a very difficult thing to speak to them about it. But the sequence of what Paul does here in verses 14 through 21 suggests that if you setting an example worthy of imitation is not enough to convince them to stop, then you must be prepared to do what Paul was prepared to do. 
you must be prepared to go there. For being prepared to do that is to love them in the same way that a good father loves. I remember the story of an elder who became aware of a young couple who were having sex before marriage who were part of his church. And when he became aware of it, he just gently pulled them aside one day and said something to the effect that this is a very serious thing that I have come to discover. And I know right now you're probably dying inside and you want to walk right out that door, but please don't. Because it is by the grace of God that I have discovered this. And so as hard as it is for me to talk to you about this, it would be even worse if I didn't. For the longer that both of you continue in sin, the harder your hearts will become. And you don't need me to tell you that that is the very worst thing that can happen. But find comfort in knowing that this is why Christ came so that both of you and I and everyone else would see what he has done for us on that cross and we would change. Now I trust that this is all I have to say on this matter, but I do ask that if either of you feel tempted again, I ask that you would call me so that I can pray. I'm happy to report that the elder didn't get a call, but he did get a huge hug from both of them on their wedding day a year later. Friends, in my experience, if you use the gospel's carrot in the right way, it is very rare that you will have to use its stick. For the gospel is a very powerful thing. And so if ever you find yourself in a situation like Paul or that elder, when being a faithful servant requires you to speak to someone else about their sin, just make sure when you speak to them that you speak to them in a way that does not let what they've done sound bigger than what Jesus has done for them. Because every one of us is more than capable of making some very bad choices. But be that as it may, there is still less sin in us than there is mercy in him. There's no question being a faithful servant of Christ is difficult. But it is worth it. Because you get him. He is the one who suffered for us, which is why it must always be considered a privilege to be considered worthy to suffer for him.